Well, welcome to Solid Rock. Good to see you all today. Thank you for braving the elements. I don't know if I'm the only one that bit it this morning on the ice, but, and when I say bit it, I mean feet in the air, landed on my back. Fortunately, not many other people were out and about that early, and so I don't think anybody witnessed it, except maybe some security cameras at the apartments next door. But I will be attempting to bribe them for that footage later. Well, my guess is that by now the red and pink hearts and various candies that have dominated seasonal aisles at supermarkets around the city over the past month are finally beginning to disappear from the shelves. At least, I hope so. And I don't want to get too deep into my disdain for a ridiculously commercialized holiday to celebrate romantic love. Some people are into it, I get it, that's fine. But there, there is something fascinating to me about the part of the body we associate with emotions, the, the organ that we associate with love in the modern world. That organ is sentimentalized and turned into the stylized and delicate symbol, what we know as the shape of a heart. So whether we would think of that cartoonish depiction of a character who is in love and has that very recognizable heart shape pounding out of the chest, or maybe we, maybe we would think of what has become that popular phrase, I heart you, which is also interesting. I think that was probably developed for those who were maybe a bit afraid of commitment, but still wanted to express their <laughs> deep feelings for somebody else. I can't say I love you, but I heart you. I don't know. Anyway, p part of the reason that's also interesting is because the heart wasn't always seen as the seat, or at least not the only seat, of human emotions. In the ancient world, centers of human faculties and traits often differed. In fact, at times it was even the bowels or the gut that was the seat of human emotion, which makes you wonder what would the graphic on greeting cards be, or or maybe emojis. We'll have to wait for the next Apple update, I, I guess. I'd really love to see Apple come out with, an, anyway. <laughs> I, per, honestly though, I would kind of like to see greeting cards that would give us some more options, like maybe the phrase, I love you with all my kidney or all my liver or something <laughs> instead of my heart. Before we get off the rails, today we are reading a section from the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah where God speaks through him and says this, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, which sounds normal. It sounds straightforward enough until we realize that that's actually not the organ mentioned in the Hebrew text. The, the Hebrew actually reads kidneys in, instead, which wouldn't make much sense for us. So obviously, translators have made some decisions to help make this understandable for us. But all of that to say, during this chapter we're going to read in Jeremiah today, we find him speaking repeatedly about the human heart, making some claims about the heart, and ultimately urging his audience towards proper affections of the heart, and then lets them in on what hangs in the balance when you begin to ask the question, what does your heart truly desire? It's a serious question, and your answer to that question has serious implications. Now, in many ways, the, the zeitgeist or the spirit of our age might be summed up with the oft-used statement, just follow your heart, 
right? You've heard that, probably said it. I know I've said that before. Just follow your heart. Or maybe the more up-to-date version of that statement would be, you do you, right? You do you. And following my heart, that sounds really good until I realize at times following my heart would have led to some devastating outcomes. I don't know if that's true for you, but I've seen that to be the case in my life. So one thing Jeremiah is going to do, I think, is argue for his audience that the impulse to follow your heart may not be wise, at least not all the time, or at least it cannot be said without qualification. And those qualifications determine whether following our hearts would be good, whether it will lead to life, or whether it will lead to death, which admittedly, those are some pretty severe consequences. Again, a lot hangs in the balance on how we answer these questions. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 17. Let's begin reading in verse 1, which is going to sort of set us up for where we're heading in our text today. Beginning in verse 1, Jeremiah says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures, I will give you for spoil, give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So, this is setting us up for where we're heading. A little background on where we are in Jeremiah this morning. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first chapter of Jeremiah, and we, we saw that Jeremiah as a prophet is called to make these prophetic declarations to Judah because of her sin. He is called to announce some of the consequences for that sin. And the famous line from chapter one of this book that we briefly talked about was this. It was God calling Jeremiah saying, I have put my words in your mouth to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So this is the purpose God is calling Jeremiah towards. And with that purpose in mind, as we come to Jeremiah chapter 17, we could perhaps envision a courtroom setting where Yahweh is presenting an indictment against Judah because her sin of idolatry, broadly speaking, her worship of other gods is undeniable. There, there's no defense to speak of. And that indictment is presented in this permanent fashion. Jeremiah says, this is your sin, written with a pin of iron, and written in the most consequential places, written on your hearts, written on your altars. So Jeremiah is beginning to connect the theological claims he is going to make about idolatry, and then the historical situation or realities that Judah will face. Or in other words, Judah's disobedience Judah's idolatry are about to lead to national destruction at the hands of Babylon. So we continue reading where we find more detail as we get to our text for today, beginning in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, 
whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So this is a thought that parallels what we read this morning as a part of our call to worship from Psalm 1, where the psalmist said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. What what is more, both of these texts use an image of a plant. An image of a a tree or a shrub which has very different outcomes based upon the location of the plant or based upon what the plant is putting its roots deep into. So what this metaphor suggests is that the fruit or the end of a result of a life, just like a plant, depends a lot on the environment. Where is it planted? And when you see where it's planted, you can typically discover where it is going to end up. I mean, do the roots even have an opportunity for thriving life? Or is life an absolute pipe dream? I mean, if the roots of a tree are planted into toxic soil, life is impossible. It's just not going to happen. Or we could think of the many shrubs that, if planted in a desert, don't stand much of a chance at survival because the conditions are harsh. The soil is tough. The climate is dry. And all of those things don't make plant life easy. Nanette and I bought a new house a couple of years ago. And we worked for three or four months on the interior of the house trying to get it ready to move in. And we, we spent all of our time and all of our attention focused on the inside of the house to the complete neglect of the outside. We, we didn't touch the yard. We didn't touch any of the flower gardens. I didn't even water any of it. And we had a month and a half or so of really hot and quite dry uh, climate, which in the end killed a huge section of our grass. 12 feet by 12 feet in the front yard. And when I say it killed the grass, I I don't mean it just turned brown. And then when it rained, it came back to life. I mean, it was just dirt. There was no grass brown or green, no grass left at all because the conditions, the environment of that plant life was not conducive for life. And in a similar way with this metaphor, it is the choices of an individual which determine the environment we are planted in and in the end determines the end result of that individual and the end result of the community the individual is a part of. So if the decisions we make about what we plant ourselves in are not carefully considered and approached with intentionality, we may end up in a place where abundant life is just not possible because our environment, what we are planting ourselves in, impacts our ability to thrive to a large degree. If we are in a desert and we want to plant a nice little daffodil or a rose bush, the deck is sort of stacked against us because the conditions in a desert are not conducive to that growth. Now, the weight of the metaphor that Jeremiah is using here is only intensified when we remember the context of the message. This is a message that is delivered in a part of the world where access to water The wellspring of all life, access to water is limited. It's not easy. 
It comes at great cost, and throughout history, this was a part of the world often desperate for access to that life-giving water. So the people hearing this message originally would have understood that water is a matter of life and death in a way that most of us probably just don't. I mean, we get that on a theoretical level, but we probably don't grasp the gravity of a waterless situation because most of us have never faced that. We've never lacked water for a prolonged period of time, but it is a serious environmental condition that may prevent life. So the environment of a plant determines whether there is going to be productive life or not. Now when we talk about the environment impacting our ability to live in a way that is healthy, impacting our ability to live in the way we were intended to live, I'm not suggesting that, well, we can't hang out with folks that have no faith, because that's the environment we're planting ourselves in, right? So we can't hang out with people that have no faith because as the popular claim made by youth pastors across the nation goes, you show me your friends, I'll show you if you thank you, Nanette. You know. We didn't even talk about that. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the environment of our lives. I think what Jeremiah is getting at and what we're referring to when we talk about the environment we are planted in refers to the condition of our hearts, the inclinations of our hearts. And one thing Jeremiah seems to be saying here is that if your heart is pointed in the wrong direction, if you're not trusting in God, it's like trying to grow a delicate flower in the desert. It's just not going to happen. If your heart is pointing in the wrong direction where you're not trusting God and you want to live, it's just not going to happen. On the other hand, he suggests in the section we come to now, there is a way that leads to life. And the way that leads to life has to do with the environment of the heart, the direction our hearts are taking us. In verse 7, it says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out, out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Walter Brueggemann sums up the message we find in Jeremiah 17 in this way. The one who trusts only in Yahweh is destined for life like a green tree with plenty of water. A destiny of either life or death is determined by the object of one's trust. So just like there is no alternative to water, at least not a viable option for sustaining plant life, what Jeremiah suggests is that any source other than Yahweh, if the object of your trust is anyone other than God, the end result is death. Again, this is a pretty serious consequence. A lot hangs in the balance, and perhaps we would take issue with the severity of this warning. I mean, is it really necessary to frame this in terms of life and death? Is it that big of a deal? I mean, we're living in the age of liberty. We do what we want in the moment. 
We are at liberty to follow our hearts because being true to ourselves is of tantamount importance. What is more, maybe my definition of the good life is different than your definition of the good life, and so we can just both choose our paths and end up in the same spot. But what I think Jeremiah is hinting at is the fact that my heart can't always be trusted. Jeremiah insists here that a person who trusts falsely, if you're trusting in the wrong person or the wrong thing, he says it leads to death. And that impending death may not be immediately evident, but that is the end result. And John Calvin's commentary on this passage, and I don't often quote Calvin, so mark this down. But in his commentary on this passage, he suggests that the dying shrub may even appear to be alive. It might look like there's plenty of life in the plant, but the root system is dead. That life is not going to last. There, there's no life despite all appearances. So in this context, with the announcement that Jeremiah is making for Judah, Jeremiah understands and sees the true condition of the people of Judah. But his audience, Judah themselves, they would have said, well, what are you talking about? Everything's going along just fine. This is good. This is alive. We are living. Jeremiah says it might look like that, but in the end it will lead to death. He goes on, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, or the kidneys, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, this statement made in verse 9 is probably the most well-known sentence in this chapter. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. And there are certain Christian traditions, I don't want to point the finger at all, but there are traditions that just eat this verse up. This is sort of the life verse that they cling to and go to at all times. Um, the heart is desperately sick. Um, there are folks that use this to prop up an entire system of carefully crafted theology about the absolute depravity of human beings. That The human heart is always evil. It always desires to go against the grain of God's purposes. It is absolutely depraved and desperately sick. I mean, that seems to be what Jeremiah is saying here. But then we find other places in our scriptures that seem to contradict that thought a little bit. I mean, we could think of a place like Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flow the springs of life seems to be pretty contradictory with what Jeremiah has suggested in verse 9, that the heart is ultimately evil and cannot be trusted. What we find in Proverbs seems to be a rather optimistic view of the capacity of the human heart, because if we keep it with all vigilance, what comes from it? Streams of life. So there is this capacity for good from the human heart, but Again, we need to qualify that. So how can that be? Well, in a similar prophetic text, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 11. 
Where Ezekiel has also announced destruction that is coming on Israel because of her idolatry, and just like Jeremiah, that message in Ezekiel turns to hope, and what we find in verse 19 of chapter 11 is this, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So this is the tension that we find our scriptures trying to work out. It's the tension that we all have the responsibility to work out because our culture says, follow your heart. You do you. Follow your heart at all costs. What we find in the prophet Jeremiah, he says, well, hold on a second, let's pump the brakes a little bit on that thought because your heart is not always predisposed to the things that are good, beautiful, and true. Your heart is not always going to take you towards what is life-giving. I mean, perhaps your heart got you into this mess to begin with. It isn't trustworthy. Your heart can be fickle. It isn't always reliable. A lot of times your heart is going to be unfaithful. But the promise that we find in Ezekiel chapter 11, and then it's repeated again in chapter 36, is what I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. If you can trust me, and trust me with all your heart, your heart will lead you in my ways. And I think this is when we get to the core of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is not a glorification of the ability of the human heart or the intrinsic goodness of the human spirit if left to its own desires. It's not about you and I being true to ourselves at all costs. I think most of us would probably admit that that could lead to some pretty terrible things. And yet at the same time, Christian spirituality is not about despising the human heart. It's not about seeing no good or, or no capacity for things that are true and beautiful coming from the human heart. Because central to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the belief that Jesus changes, actually changes and redeems the human heart in an ongoing, lifelong process of sanctification. And so Christian spirituality hinges on the proper disposition of the heart. Are we trusting in God alone? If we are trusting in God alone, then our hearts are leading us in the right direction. There's a pastor in Canada named Bruxy Cavey who put it like this. He said, Christian spirituality is not about learning a new set of rules to make God happy. That's the way of religion. Instead, it is a state of being and becoming that allows us to do whatever we want. Now, that may sound a little bit scary. Allows us to do whatever we want. Why? Because what we want is being shaped by the life and love of God. So as we put ourselves in a position where we are trusting in God alone, our desires actually begin to change. And as we are being formed, then we can begin to trust our desires because we trust in God alone. We, we have a heart of flesh that has replaced the heart of stone that was so destructive. I mean, this is central, I think, to Christian ethics. We desire what is true 
and good. So we aren't looking for a return to increased rules. That's the way of religion. What we are looking for is a return to increased trust in our God that leads to a level of commitment where even if we are asked to do something or live in a way that we don't want to live, or even if we are called into great difficulty, we trust that God knows what's best, that God ultimately knows what is good for our souls. And so, as St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are indeed restless until they find rest in you. And as we begin to find rest in Jesus Christ, as our hearts are being transformed, as we are putting ourselves in a position where we trust God and are willing to follow him, it's not just about following rules against our desires, but our desires actually begin to change because we want what God wants for us. So the claim that Jeremiah makes throughout this passage, if we rely on our hearts, if we rely on our feelings in the moment, sometimes if our hearts haven't been properly ordered around a love of God and around a deepening trust in God, our hearts will lead us to death and destruction rather than life and health. We can only trust our hearts when they are saturated in love, saturated in a trust of God and devotion to the ways he leads us. I think this is the central claim of this passage, that God is like living water. And if we can remain connected, there is a continual stream of water that is nourishing our, slow, uh, our souls and forming our desires, bringing them into conformity with Christ. If, however, we forsake God, if we trust in something or someone other than God, we have willfully planted ourselves in a barren desert. And what happens when we plant ourselves in that soil that is dry or, or toxic? It may look like we're living for a while, but in the end, it will lead us to death. This is actually similar to something we see Jesus suggest in John chapter 7. And Kevin, if you all want to come up as we prepare to share in the Eucharist. John chapter 7, read in verse 37. Jesus says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus here identifies himself with Yahweh, claims to be the God of Israel that Jeremiah was pointing the people of Judah to as the object of their trust, devotion, and hope. And Jesus, in line with what Jeremiah was doing, is calling Jerusalem to believe in him as the remedy, as the cure for the fickleness and the unfaithfulness of the human heart. Come to Jesus, the living water, streams of life. If we don't, as Jeremiah suggested, we plant ourselves in a barren wasteland, but if we can trust in God alone, we are planted in streams of living water 
So the question for us this morning as you stand, as we prepare to come forward for the Eucharist, are you thirsty? This is the question Jesus poses in John chapter 7. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. Trust in the Lord. Put yourselves in a position where you are trusting in God alone and see how your desires begin to change. Amen. We're going to come to the table this morning in response. And if you're new or visiting, we invite you to this celebration as we gather around the table of our Lord, as we partake in these gifts that he has blessed us with, his body and his blood. You'll come forward, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements, take them on your own. Are you thirsty for life? Jesus says, come and drink. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity, for the invitation that you have given to come to your table, to find sustenance and nourishment in you alone. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we continue to put ourselves in a position where we are trusting in you, we ask that you would change the desires of our hearts. Bring us into alignment with your heart. Lord Jesus, we are dependent on you for this change. Pray that you would meet with us in this meal. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.